Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I want to address a question that I think is on everybody's mind, which is, what will the future of our offices be? What are they going to look like? How are we going to work? What's the physical structure going to be like? Now, I know there's been a lot of speculation about the death of the big headquarters office and real estate that's going to be empty and no one's ever going to be in it and that we will never return to the office again, or at least some people won't return to the office again. What I'm hearing is that about 50% of the population are actually missing the office, and believe it or not, they're missing the commute to the office, that transition between a home and a work life. They're missing the energies of being around other people. But on the other hand, about 50% of the people are saying the opposite. They're actually quite happy working from home and finding themselves not being as distracted, much more productive, and much happier. So... Um, And as I've said, some think they've been more productive at home. Some think they haven't been as productive at home. So what are we going to do? Are we going to return back to a sort of central office structure with a presenteeism culture? And if not, what's going to happen? And what are the implications most importantly for work, for the locations where we live and work, for the hours we spend and for the way we make connections to people? So my guest today is Chris Kane. Chris, I should argue, is incredibly well-suited to address this topic. He's worked in corporate real estate sector for over 30 years, first as a vice president of the International Corporation of Real Estate for the Walt Disney Company. And before that, he was the head of corporate real estate for the BBC in the UK, British Broadcasting Company, for those of you who don't know BBC. His new book, Where is My Office? Reimagining the Workplace in the 21st Century investigates what's happening in the innovative corporate real estate thinking about the modern workplace. And you can learn more about him and his work at his website, whereismyoffice.com. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Wanda. Lovely to spend some time with you and um, chatting about things called offices. I agree. I think this is a hot topic on everybody's mind. And I know a lot of my corporate clients, even pre-pandemic, were starting to reimagine, reconfigure the culture that their office space was creating. So I know that a lot of people in real estate have been on this journey for a while. But I'm interested for you, why do you care about corporate real estate? What's what's the interest for you? Oh, um. Why do I care? Well, I think we could make much better use of the built environment. But I learned in working for the Walt Disney Company and with the BBC that it's um, it's all about people and place, not place and people. And I grew up as a traditional real estate guy until um, I got a call in the mid-90s and um, enticing me to go work in California for, for Disney and uh, I joke that I had a real Mickey Mouse job, but it gave me one thing which the real estate industry could never give me. It gave me the ability to dream 
and to imagine. And it opened my eyes to possibilities because real estate generally as part of, as a sector in our economy, is probably one of the most introspective sectors um, right across the board and globally because people always need space. You need a roof over your head to live. Up to quite recently, you needed an office. And uh, 15, 20 years ago, I figured out that actually you didn't need all the office space we were leasing because most buildings are wasted uh, in space. They only use 50% of the capacity. And then I just was watching, say, people coming into work in Manhattan, streaming out of Penn Station or Central Station or, or the bus station or here in London, out of Waterloo or something. And they're all just going, to, going into these huge, big office buildings. And I noticed that nobody smiles Nobody seems to be enjoying life. And what is this thing about office work? So it got me really interested in a passion of mine, which is called people in place and making for better working environments to enable people do their creative best. Because that was my job at Disney and it was subsequently the BBC as well, is to help the creative process. And yet we have a system which goes against that. Up until quite recently, when you know, technology was coming in, um, 15 years ago now, individuals were untethered from the desk. Because for those of us with a few miles on the clock, and Wanda, you'll never remember this, but at one stage, we all had desk phones and we all had PCs. And you had to, that was your desk. And if you look at how work was then, it was modeled on the old factory, industrial age paper processing. How much paper do we have now? Even the lawyers, as a result of the lockdown, have got comfortable with signing documents digitally. So this digital revolution was, uh, as you quite rightly said at your opening, uh, was getting business leaders to think differently. And COVID came along and uh, just threw rocket fuel and all these changes. So we're now asking ourselves questions I never thought we might ask, like, what is the purpose of the office? Why do I need to go downtown to spend time sending emails? Uh, and, you know, you're right that there's 50-50 is um, probably about the split in terms of people who want to go back and or don't want to go back. And, you know, that's another aspect of 20th century thinking we need to forget about of mass production, homogenized thinking, uh, one size fits all. We're into a customized uh, world now where the worker has the real choice. That's an interesting space. Um, I've, well, there are a couple of trends that I have watched in this space, and my fascination is not with the real estate market, but with the ways in which the working space creates the culture and the kind of interactions. But a couple of observations. One is, um, first off, one of my big clients has reconfigured their working space and created um, creative spaces. So, you know, different types of pillows, different types of seating, different types of lighting, different types of photographs. I mean, just creative, playful. And for if you knew the company name, you would say, oh, my gosh, they put in pink sequenced pillows. You, you must be kidding me, especially given that it's a fairly traditional company and just those kind of traditional spaces rethinking. But I've also known furniture manufacturers, office manufacturers who've been studying how millennials and Gen Z work particularly their work patterns in college, and say, how do we provide better working spaces that more fit their traditional working patterns? And have created some very clever designs along the way. 
And I know you've been tracking this one as well. Yeah. And but you raise a couple of really interesting points, but let me try and deconstruct it. Firstly, um, all of that stuff is very relevant, but from a real estate point of view, they never had to worry about it before because people always needed space in a big downtown office building or in a suburban office park. There just wasn't choice. Secondly, the smart employers, sounds like some of your clients are in that uh, category, were recognizing that you know uh, there is a war for talent, that the vast majority of office workers need to be very digitally savvy, be able to solve problems, be creative. The days of having hundreds of people processing invoices or spreadsheet jockeys, um, those days, if, if they're not over, they're in the final chapter because automation is coming. So the savvy employer wants to be an employer of choice, which means that and this is why one of the reasons I wrote the book was to show how a productive workplace can enable a productive workforce. And it's very relevant. You know, this is pre-COVID. Gallup surveys of U.S. office workers are showing you know, 60, 70 percent of the total office workforce being disengaged with their employers, mainly due to the fact that they were offered poor office working environments. So uh, there was lots happening there. And then, as I said, uh, you know, COVID came along and it changed not only the game, but the stadium because the real estate folk, and it also had the impact then on the city, you know, downtown Manhattan, right. what's going to happen to that? What's going to happen to LA, to, you know, the Bay Area in San Francisco? The, today's Wall Street Journal has a big um, article around remote working and the futures for this. And, you know, people are saying, oh, well, they'll do, the, how you can't work from home. Well, you can't, but you can work from home some of the time for some of the people, for some of the organizations. And if I've learned one thing in developing my thinking around people and place and making it relevant to real estate was that um, we're all human beings. We have different drivers. We have different uh, characteristics. Uh, you take the typical Myers-Briggs characterization. Some people are extrovert and some people are introvert. And the smart employers and the smart HR teams already spotted that. If you make allowances for how people prefer to work, you will be more productive. Mm -hmm. And it's not about saving $30 on the rent, but the $300 cost of that human being. Because if that human being is not delivering a certain level of productivity, the cost of the real estate actually is irrelevant in one way. True enough. Um, and I suspect it's not even $300. If you look at the cost of an average employer employee per hour, you know, yeah. an hour lost of time is a big thing. And plus the dissatisfaction from not having a balance in their lives. So I want to go backwards for a minute. Um, you, because I want to get the story out. You did some very creative work at the BBC. And I should comment that I heard about that from BBC employees because I was running some leadership development programs at the time you were making the transformation. And wow. I will have to say, for the most part, there was sort of enthusiasm, a couple of not so great, but some enthusiasm. But you made a massive change. Just tell us a little bit about your what you did and the thinking and what you think that has done for the BBC. Wow. Um, I, I was extremely lucky in that, you know, I mean, you and your, um, your listeners will recognize that to make um, – change stick. Uh, one of the key ingredients is effective sponsorship. And Mark Thompson 
uh, the CEO or he, his BBC title was Director General. How about that for a label? Yeah. Um, he recognized the need for the corporation to move from analog to digital. And he also spotted that if people moved from an old building to a new building and new working practices, he could make that change stick and make it faster. So uh, our paths crossed. Well, he's the boss. And he saw that by you know setting up new facilities, moving it to completely digital along with a new building, you know, paid huge dividends. And we we even got to play at a at, on a massive scale in that Mark decided to move uh, a, a significant proportion of the BBC out of London to uh, provide for a more balanced um, share of public funding for production, moving it from 80% in London to 50-50. So that required actually moving five divisions out. And we ended up creating a city. And the, the BBC's jobs in Salford near Manchester, which is Britain's second city, um, generated uh, 30,000 new jobs because the BBC's uh, employment sort of pump-primed urban regeneration on a massive scale. But the, the brief for that was a greenfield site and a greenfield organisation. And this is where Mark said to new leadership, a new division, uh, leave all the old stuff behind. You're going to a new location. You're going to completely open plan. You're, but you'll be able to do great creative stuff. And that's what made it appealing and sexy in terms of people saying, we can make great programming. And they were. So um, it, was, it, it was something I was very proud of that playing my contribution to moving the BBC from analog to digital and keeping it up there as one of the world's greatest independent broadcasters and you know, being able to produce, whether it's news, sports, journalism, drama, sort of anywhere, any place, any time. And, and, and that's what happened. And it was a massive change for a, an organisation which didn't have a bottom line. The BBC is a public service broadcaster, so it's funded by by a tax, the license fee. So that that um, you know P and L imperative that a CFO drives and other you know uh, corporations didn't exist, but um, and people were slow to change, and that's why Mark had to. I mean, drive this thing very carefully. And, you know, uh, the proof of the pudding was in the eating then when he moved to the New York Times and, you know, what he did there as well in terms of helping the Times, you know, I mean, go into the digital age as well, which, you know, for most organizations, we have to accept the fact that, you know, if we, for many of us, we started our careers in analog and it's now very much digital and that's the way of the world. I know that of the folks that I was talking to, and we were doing programs around change, so it shouldn't be surprised that these were, these themes were all coming up. They were quite excited about the ability to not have to now commute into central London and to be out in the communities in which they actually lived and closer to the people who were actually supporting the programming, yeah. plus the excitement of having a new facility and so on. Yeah. Okay, so what trends are you seeing? So out of the BBC and you know past history, what are trends are you seeing that you think we really need to be thinking about? I think the biggest challenge is that uh, what I call the shift from fixed to fluid in that up to uh, you know, the end of uh, 2019, uh, and there was an awful lot of great work done in what's labelled workplace strategy and driving efficiency, introducing agile working, activity-based working. 
but it was all looking purely at the efficiency side of the equation. And I've always uh, argued um, for some time that we also need to think about the effectiveness side of the equation, uh, the people bit, uh, enabling people, and thinking beyond just what work they do, but how they commute, their home life, uh, well-being, the, the employee experience. And for many people in the real estate world, they said, well, what's this got to do with me? I just build buildings and uh, charge a rent. But the COVID has proved one thing that if um, you can't get your people to work in a space, then you won't be paying the rent. If the rent is not paid, the whole real estate system comes down like a house of cards. So real estate's got to pay attention to all this stuff. But there's some really big things in that um, commuting, whether it's in North America or whether it's here in Europe or wherever. People, even in Asia Pacific, are now saying, why do I need to go there? Can I work in a, a variety of places? Standard Chartered Bank in Singapore have just announced um, the, for all 75,000 employees there that uh, they have the option of either going to the office, working from home, or working locally. They've got a network of branches, so there'll be um, uh, local work hubs, and they'll all have the ability then to work in um, in Regis IWG hubs as well. So there, uh, I think I think we're going to see a significant uh, shift to much more distributed workforces, which will mean that we'll need to look at much more distributed workplaces as well. Okay. Which means the real estate industry needs to uh, change its model. So that means we'll have much more uh, companies like the WeWorks or the Regis's of the world where you can have small hubs of people. Is that what you're advocating for? I, I think um, you'll see some of that. I think um, I, in the research for the book, uh, particularly in North America, I uncovered some far sighted property companies who are saying, well, why would we give WeWork or Convene or any of the other regions the, the margin? Why don't we do this stuff ourselves? Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's going to be a lot of um, change in, in a model that's never been changed. The real estate sector globally is the last remaining sector of the economy that has yet to be disrupted. And, you know, in recent years, there's been a growth of prop tech initiatives. But I think COVID will bring around some very significant structural changes. People will be thinking about their their model. Um, people will be reassessing that. Um, but also, there may well be an opportunity, say, um, for um, public bodies, municipalities to say, hey, have we got surplus space in libraries and town halls and public buildings that we can change into local work hubs? So you reduce the commute. You reduce your carbon footprint. There are some really big potential prizes here. The biggest prize of all is the human one. Uh, I was talking to some people in the Bay Area, uh, October 19, and they were telling me about the huge uh, toll it takes of people doing commuting where there, the the average one way is up to two hours. Mm -hmm. And the risk that that means in terms of you have a crash on the highway, to the fact that by the time you get in, you're exhausted and then you're worried about driving home safely to your family. What if, what if you had a more blended type of working? And, you know, people are now saying, you know, let's do three plus two, let's do some other permutations. 
Spain, for example, have announced literally in the last 10 days that they're experimenting countrywide with the introduction of a four-day week. So there's lots of interesting things emerging. And for a, a real estate guy like me, I think most of my colleagues would describe me as the ultimate maverick, I'm saying we've got to be aware of these things because all these things are connected. And unless you know how they connect and what their impact is, then you're not going to stay ahead of the game. Right. There's been um, a discussion for a number of years now about the bulk of the world's population is going to be in 60 or 70 cities. Yeah. As we see the big offices, the big complexes, and all the satellite services that go around those big offices and that breeds you know, small businesses like mine. Um, to support those. And then you need to be on those big centers because that's where everybody is, all right? And so that would lead to this notion that we have 60 or 70 mega cities and that's where we all live. So do you, so some of this trend is saying, I don't have to be in the mega city. I can be in Manchester as opposed to in London. So do you think that this trend of mega cities is going to decline? I think it had already started um, pre-COVID. Take uh, London, for example, pre-COVID net migration, and this is pre-Brexit as well, uh, was down because um, I couldn't figure this out. So I asked a few young people under 30s uh, who lived, who brought up in London, but studied elsewhere. And they said when they went away from London, they realized that their quality of life was better because they didn't have the commute, they didn't have the costs. So they decided to settle in secondary cities or small towns outside of London. But the the big thing I reckon is that sadly, we're in pandemic times for a little while. If you read the World Economic Forum Risk Trends Report for 2021, it doesn't make for good reading. So any sensible board will be saying, Where's my risk and how do I develop a resilient um, sort of business model going forward? And also with the arrival of ESG and all of that, how, um, how do I, what do I need to do to reframe my business? So, you know, I mean, we've all grown up and acknowledged this consolidation and centralization trend. I think we're going to move to a much more... Um, uh, sort of uh, networked and platformed and ecosystem mindset mm-hmm. where the cities are never going to die because cities are resilient places. But the, and there's, there'll be a massive redefinition. If you take what's happening, say the mayor of Paris has uh, come up with a very clever urban planner there uh, whose name escapes me at the moment uh, with a concept called the 15 minute city. Um, I think, I can't remember which American city is following similar lines. Oh, it'll come to me. But um, so there's people are reacting to this already. And you um, you wonder, maybe cities could be better places. You know, the centre of Paris, say, won't have cars in two years' time so people can walk around the Champs-Élysées and enjoy the, the lovely urban spaces. Um Will this happen in the U.S.? There is an interesting topic. Will you be able to walk down Fifth Avenue rather than... I wish. (laughs) You know, but... Yeah. I mean, we would have said, if we were chatting a year ago, we'd say, nah, he's he's crazy. Now, you don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. 
I think you don't know. I've, I am a big believer in walking. And one of the reasons I love living in New York and in London is I can walk everywhere I go. I don't own a car anymore and I don't want to own a car anymore. I can lease one if I need it for that matter. And I just like that kind of lifestyle. So from my point of view, I've long thought here in New York, we need to shut down about half the streets and turn them just into walking, biking centers. I think it would be better for traffic all the way around. Not many people are listening to me, but <laughs> at any rate, so it goes. But you know, like everything else, it's uh, you have to understand history and you know our love affair with the internal combustion engine. You know, it made a lot of sense. Now we have real choice for the first time ever and you know i'm sure it's in the same in the states but here in say in europe everybody is going crazy buying electric cars and hybrid cars and britain the british government has announced that um it wants all its vehicles um electric by 2030 that's nine years away that's not yeah. that long so yeah. there's something big happening out there which is systemic and far-ranging and um hopefully you know at there will be some positive um, benefits to be had out of this dreadful pandemic right. and the force changing thinking. Yeah, and I have to give a shout out on this one to my friend Lucas Neckerman, who talks about mobility and cities and the cars and transportation and the fact that we are going to go to a very different form of transportation in the cities for a whole host of reasons. Lucas has been a podcast guest too, if you want to know more about that trend. All right, so I get this from the city. Now take me into the workplace itself. What I'm seeing is a massive emphasis on collaboration and creativity, like I have not seen in past through any number of crises. And that is, you know, the workspaces that we're in directly impact our ability to collaborate and be creative. What are you seeing and what are you thinking? Um, I've always um, worried about the fact that you know, in the industry, there was this big disconnect between the people who build the buildings and design it and provide the furniture and the people who operate the space. And the, you know what I mean? You, you can't get a truly collaborative or creative environment unless you have both. So it needs to um, be managed effectively. And that's, you know, facilities management plus experience. And many cost-cutting, organized, focused organizations have cut their FM proposition right down to the bone, not realizing that unless the space is effectively managed, people can't do of their creative best. Because you need somebody to make sure that meeting rooms are properly equipped and you've got all the other bits of uh, pieces of things that are frustrating to um, the, the office worker. But the I guess we're also seeing a massive uh, shift to a different type of working. I don't think you're going to um, see many more new buildings coming on stream with seas of office cubicles or, or rows and rows of desks and people working at them. I think you're going to see a much more um, focus on uh, team neighborhood areas where people, you know, I mean, can work together on solving problems and they can have breakout areas and work with clients and work with other folk who come in specifically to to meet and to brainstorm and do workshops. So there's, I would hope one of the unintended consequences of all of this is that office buildings, which are expensive things to 
produce will be more effectively used. You know, I mean, the, um, for many years pre-COVID in particular, the, the maximum utilization people were getting out of an office was about 50, 55%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was large swathes of space which were hardly ever used, executive offices, one right. clear example, but also other parts of it. So, um, you know, the... I remember sort of, uh, you know, BBC America, um, whose office was on Avenue of the Americas, and they did a refit, God, some years ago, probably probably 10 years ago now, and um, Herb, the president of the time, said we didn't want um, to have the executive offices on the corners. And this was revolutionary, mm-hmm. but it meant that people could collaborate or congregate, should I say, in those corner areas, and the, the, the team uh, spirit... And um, the productivity went through the roof because they were they felt more connected to the business. Plus, they get light, or at least the potential of sunlight coming in, which I've always thought was criminal. The executives are never there, and all the light is blocked by their closed door. So- yeah, the, the, um, I think that reminds me, Wanda, that you know we're we, we've got to leave our sort of industrial age management thinking behind us. You know, I mean, if you look at uh, many Europeans have no idea just how big some U.S. office floor plates can be. Yeah, 50,000 square feet is sort of the norm for many big office buildings, which for a European point of view would seem enormous. And given that uh, I'm not as regular a visitor as you are to London, to America, but uh, I, I've visited most of the major cities over the last 20 years, and I, I'm, I'm very aware of, of scale. And, you know, part of the, I suppose, the, the old way of thinking was large floor plates drive efficiency, get as many people there, and don't worry if the lighting is awful in the middle and the, the air quality is suboptimal. It's fine. They'll be able to do their work because they have to do their work. Well, now, you see, employees are voting with their feet, particularly if you're in the younger generations, are saying, I don't want to work for that organization because the working environment is not good. So, you know, I mean, it's a false economy. Right. Okay. That is, Chris, a great place to take a break because I want to come back and talk about, so are we really finally going to see the death knell of the rows and rows and rows of soulless um, cubicles? We can go back and talk about that one in a minute. My guest today is Chris Kane. As you hear, he's got quite a deal experience in the real estate sector, working for the Walt Disney Company and then for the British Broadcasting Company, helping them manage their real estate, I might say, empires and footprint and make that space fit for purpose for where the companies are headed in the future. The book we're talking about is Where Is My Office? Reimagining the Workplace in the 21st Century. And we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Chris Kane. The book that we're talking about is Where is My Office? Reimagining the Workplace for the 21st Century. You can find more about Chris's work at his website, whereismyoffice.com. I love the speculation of where, what kind of office space we're going to be in, how we use that space to, to engender the kind of working environments, collaboration, creativity we're all looking for, to find the workspace as a place that is fun to go back to, enjoyable to go back to, inspiring to go back to, and the notion that it might help revitalize some cities that are not as strong as they perhaps could be at the current moment in time. So um, I have two comments I want to go to. One is a first is a story as an inspiration, and then I'd love to get your reaction to it. And then second, I want to come back to this notion of rows and rows of desks and cubicles. So my story is actually a London story, and the building was initially Ericsson's home office in London, and it became, it is now uh, BP's home office. And they reconfigured that building, keeping the facade but to build in the very central, a circular staircase that goes from the bottom floor in the cafeteria all the way up to the top floor, and then um, created the coffee spaces and lounge areas around the central staircase. So that meant that everybody came to the central hub and there was light flowing down from the top that made it just a very pleasant place to be. There were coffee, there was sort of a nice table areas, And what I watched in people working in that building is that you come to get a coffee and you run into someone and it's a natural chat collaboration check-in. Whereas most places, the coffee shop is tucked in in multiple places on the floor in a back corner 
you hope to be there by yourself and get out really quickly. There's no sense of community. And I just love the community that got created by this sort of central spot. So what's your reaction to that? Have you seen similar things in other places? Yep, and I've done it in many buildings as well. Um, And it it really goes back to this um, core principle of mine of, of people in place. Offices are not factories. They're, there's, they're, their purpose is, is to enable a business to be productive. Now, the business, like BP Ericsson, was the headquarters facility where people from many, many divisions would be, um, would be working from. And if they go uh, and get a coffee or get a sandwich, whatever, and they bump into somebody else, that serendipitous moment is invaluable. Mm-hmm. And I learned this, um, you know, a long time ago, actually, at Disney, um, designing buildings in Paris and all over the world and, you know, Disney Channel and stuff. And then when the BBC role came up, um, I did it at scale. So um, broadcasting house is a million square feet in the centre of London, and it's designed around a similar concept as is the home of BBC Worldwide in in West London. And there's so many other buildings in the last 10 years which have followed this route of challenge, not sort of directing people so they had to move around the building in a certain way rather than going into the elevators and going up to their floor and disappearing into their floor. It was more about bringing people together. Like the Apple building on the West Coast is an enormous building and it was designed in such a way that people could only go to the bathrooms in certain locations. So they had to bump into one another. So that's just another take on this on this theme. Um, in fact, all of this thinking, I guess, really started in Australia and back in the, the late 80s when they started punching holes through floors to build staircases so people could circulate better. And... You know, the model evolved. There were some great examples of this in in the U.S. and the West Coast uh, in the 90s. And it's become quite a a common strategy to say, you know, well, you can. You can't do it in every every building. And that's the challenge. But the the BP building, I, I know the one you're referring to, and it's a great story. And it proves this. I'll go back. I'm going to say it again. It's about the people and the place, and how the place is designed and how it's operated. Because the one thing that people forget is that you can have a nice coffee dock location, but the coffee has to be good, and the person serving it has to be engaging. And I've been very fortunate in my BBC career to work with some remarkable people. The baristas in the, this, the coffee stations were key members of the team. They may have been working for an outsourced supply member, but all of them realized, and some of them had magnificent memories. They could remember it was a, a latte or a cappuccino or whatever. And I said, how do you remember all of this? And it, but it made for the experience, the employee experience in a building. And that's why I think you're going to see real estate moving from being a dry space letting um, business to one which I describe as space as a service because you've got to get this service element into the building in order to attract people back into space because you know one thing we didn't cover one around um, for life post lockdown post COVID is the fear factor won't go away anytime soon right. Right. and unless 
you know, there was a new building announced in New York recently, which aimed to guarantee that its visitors would not have to touch anything if they visit the building. And, you know, there's, there'll, there'll be thinking like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this sort of stuff we, we just can't ignore anymore because we've got to manage these risks. Right. right. Yeah, it's true. I agree that's true. All right. So let's talk about this notion of cubicles. Yes. So I know that there are some people, for example, if you're working on a trading floor, the cubicles with the six or eight screens, not cubicles, the rows of desks with the six or eight screens, the ability to stand up and shout at the person who's two to three desks over creates an atmosphere that has a sense of vibe that a lot of people on the trading floor really enjoy. Okay. I get that. I see that. I see the interactivity. And I think some of those people are missing that environment. But other people who do more quiet work, let's say programmers or IT people, cannot work in that environment. Just they can't think. They're not productive in the environment. So are we going to finally see the death of rows and rows of one-size-fits-all desks and one-size-fits-all working styles? Or do you think we're stuck with that forever? I think it will die. Okay. I think we're in, anyone that thinks that that working system makes sense is a dinosaur. (laughs) And I'm not mincing my words because, you mean, the, the critical success factor for any corporation going forward is to be seen as an employer of choice because people will choose if they want to work for that organization. Mm -hmm. We've seen the huge announcements, you know, by the major investment houses that they're taking, you know, ESG criteria seriously. We're seeing the the huge explosion of consumer choice in the retail sector, and it's happening in work now as well. And because, you know, what what has been absolutely unequivocal of, of lockdown, regardless of where you are in the world, is that the enforced working from home meant that um, we've experimented with a different way of working and it's by and large proved viable, but not clearly on a permanent basis. But it also demonstrated that for most businesses, the wheels didn't come off. So it's got CFOs thinking, hey, I can cut space, I can do this, I can that. But what people are not thinking about is that the employees are also saying, hey, I quite like being home at bath time. My dad was never home for me. And I've said dad, but the other aspect is for those uh, women in the world who I think are still um, getting a a raw deal that if you're a career female who wishes to be a mother, your career prospects are by and large, and I'm speaking generalizations and I'm speaking on very sensitive topics I know for many people, but they are stunted because you are forced into decisions if uh, you wish to become a mom that uh, what's going to happen to my career progression because I can't be in the office. Then the other one, which I think might benefit from all of this, is up to uh, lockdown, members with disabilities of our communities around the world did not have much choice in how they could work. Maybe the arrival of... Um, more flexible working could open up to them. But if you're, if you're thinking you're going to be working a, a conveyor belt uh, operation, uh, which requires all of these desks or seas of cubicles, forget it. You know what I mean? 
The other big thing which we can't ignore is the onslaught of uh, and the march of automation, mm-hmm. right. which is going to impact enterprise generally. And, you know, we can talk about that if you wish, but you, you know what the topic is. I know what the topic is. I do wonder how much people are tuning in because I think everybody is saying digital as in everything becomes digital, meaning not paper. And I think the word needs to be automation. And I think every single human being who works should be thinking about how they automate the job that they're currently doing. Yeah. And there's a lot of debate around this. There's a lot of maybe scaremongering as well, the march of the robots, this, that, and the other. But in reality, um, you know, if, if you look at the nature, say, of office work in particular, and I recognize that office work is only one proportion of the overall eco- economic effort, but it is high profile and all that side of things. And um, if you look at the psychology of work, you know, it's changing and the the many people are doing work like you know you look at managers wow where's the value and people are questioning this and then you know i mean if you're filling out reports or make writing big long 200 page reports who reads these things anymore we're in a very different uh, mindset and um, i remember the bbc um, the board used to get um, board packs, which were all lever arch files for the monthly board meeting, you know, X hundred pages. And when uh, Mark introduced non-exec directors, they all arrived in with iPads saying, I want my stuff digitally. And this, what? You know? And it was, it was suddenly, and my boss uh, recognized that she uh, could reduce her team by one because there was one individual who spent all her time. And it must have been the most boring job of all, you know, I mean, printing off X number of papers, collating them. Uh, why? And these are some of the fundamental questions that have been asked now about work and, you know, I mean, the nature of enterprises, etc. You know, all this... If we thought we had a lot of change pre-COVID, you ain't seeing seeing it. We're seeing that. All right. So I get the theme that if I am responsible for the real estate footprint in my organization or I'm the CEO or the board, we already know you need to be thinking about ESG, um, that now I need to be thinking about why I want people to come to the office. For what purpose would they be coming? I need to be thinking in real, not just so I can monitor them, but to, you know, why would they need to be together? I need to be thinking about what kind of spaces are going to encourage them to engage in that kind of activity. I need to be thinking about the commute time, the stress that's induced by that commute time, the reduction in productivity that occurs by that stress, and how I might revitalize other communities. And I need to be thinking about how I make the workspace that people come to something they would enjoy being in so that it has a pull factor. Did I get that straight? Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the challenge is um, that you know, real estate needs to step up to the mark and understand that it's not just about bricks and mortar. It's about service. I was very impressed speaking to a major once again, a Spanish uh, organization, because I'm doing some work there at the moment. And he was saying that they have gazillion square meters of space around Europe. And he's just hired two people from Ritz-Carlton okay. to inject customer service proposition. Because the smart leader wants to be seen by everybody in his, 
in his or her workforce as as authentic, but also who gets it in terms of how can I get that that spark, and how can I lead my organization and. Uh, you know, it's no longer getting a big glass building with big shiny executive offices. It's more about a a creative work hub. Okay. Yes, creative where people want to come, where there's a pull to come, where there's really interesting work that happens while you're there. And that's not about the executives. That's about the average person in the organization who actually is the productivity engine, I think, if I have heard this all correctly. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to go to one of the more controversial things you say, and we may or may not disagree on this one, on this, Chris, but you think middle management is dead. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I guess um, I've been very lucky over my years to, to talk to quite a lot of people. And one of my big sources of inspiration is a gentleman called Charles Handy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he very kindly critiqued my book, and gave me a lot of tips. And, you know, he's still at 88 years old, um, sort of hale and reasonably hearty. Or recent. And he said to me, you've got to look at the nature of enterprises and the fact that, you know, the, they've grown up and they've had to bring on layers and layers and layers of management to deal with a, an analog life. We're now in the digital world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the World Economic Forum once again says that, uh, 95 million jobs uh, will disappear by you know, 2025 to be replaced by 85 million new roles. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be turmoil anyway. And then COVID came along. Right. So, you know, I think CFOs are going to be saying, how can I strip out bureaucracy and non-productive costs? Um, but also people are saying, well, why do I need somebody with a clipboard making sure I do something. You know, the technology you have, you know, if you wanted to, you can check my keystrokes. Surely it would be far better for everyone concerned to move to a more of an outcomes-based type uh, form of employment. Uh, you know, and that's before we even go into new models of employment where people are talking about offering uh, their services on a day basis or on a, you know, an hourly rate or whatever. So our whole world of work is turning head over heels in front of our eyes. And the physical component, the workplace, uh, needs to be aware of it because if, uh, if there are these changes, and I think there's, if there's better than a 50-50 chance that we'll see large-scale change, and the likes of Gary Hamill and others have been writing books about all of this, that um, the people who consume the real estate then, their, their, their consumption levels will change. So that's why the real estate industry needs to sit up and take notice. Makes sense to me. And if I have a big office building that I am managing and hoping to lease and to keep leased, I need to be thinking about the service that I provide, the creative opportunities that I provide for my leasees, the different kinds of workspace that might be useful, and so on. I love this notion that people are thinking about how do I hire a Ritz-Carlton person to come and advise me on how we create the best possible service so that people actually enjoy coming to the work, the space that they're in. Like, you know, Charles said to me once, you've got one life, live it well. Why, you know, I mean, become a sort of an automat, getting on your car, driving uh, 
to an office park or downtown, going into a big building, you only know two or three people, and it might pay the bills and pay the mortgage, but where's your job satisfaction? You know, so there's these big, and I suppose one of the unintended consequences of lockdown is for the first time ever, all of us have had the chance to stand back and think and to ask some very, fairly fundamental questions. And the fruits of those um, uh, questions, I think, are, are coming out now as we think about life post-lockdown. Right. Well, I have one complaint that I have to get in because I can't miss it, is that we have gone digital. We have, or that's an unfair word, we have worked remotely and with systems like Zoom and all the other providers that are out there. But I think we haven't provided great platforms for people. So they haven't really understood how to use this virtual platform in a brilliant, clever way that can facilitate work. So we haven't had kind of discussions about where does this help and where does it get in the way? Um, Because platforms just haven't been strong enough. So I I hope we're going to get that fixed in the near term because otherwise I think we're going to miss an opportunity. Absolutely. And it's around, you know, I mean, taking the insights and the learning from this dreadful period we've all endured and there's been so much death and suffering and learning. And it's, it's a mixture of understanding the art of the possible with the technology and the platforms, but also embracing the, the procedural changes, including managerial around, you know what I mean? If you're a good manager now, you should be enabling and supporting your team members to be able to work either in a physical, traditional basis or in the new digital basis. Great. Absolutely. One of the things that I believe the pandemic has done is highlighted the need for great management. Absolutely, totally highlighted. Um, Okay, Chris, my last question. When I have a moment, I like to ask people, what takes you out of your comfort zone and what's your secret to success? Wow. Um, I can't tell you about the secret because if I did, that wouldn't be a secret. No, I'm joking. Uh, I look back over my career and I took a conscious decision to move to London in 1983 on a one-way ticket. So that really put me um, out of my comfort zone. Taking the Disney job really did as well. But the the big one was moving to the BBC. And I knew I was going to a, a big real estate job and running a team of over 2,000 people. But then they came in a week after I joined and said, and by the way, we want you to lead a $360 million bond financing deal. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. But I had great colleagues, great uh, sponsorship. And I learned very quickly. And I think the... The secret of my success is be curious and always ask why and be willing to learn something new every day. And we're back to, again, that notion of the growth mindset, the learning mindset, one of the secret sauces for the current environment if you're going to survive it. All right, Chris Kane, what a fascinating show. I knew it would be. Um, Who would think that we would need to be talking about real estate when we talk about leadership? But I am now convinced, if I ever had a doubt, that if you are leading an enterprise, you need to be thinking about the space that you are providing for the people around, the kind of atmosphere that that's creating and what that's engendering and fostering and encouraging them to do. So think about why you really want people to come to office, 
why people would want to come to the office. How do you create an environment that is a pull for them to come? What do you expect people to do while they're there? And what kind of space is actually going to foster those sorts of activities? As opposed to, as you said at the very beginning, Chris, spend an hour and a half in a commute with a hassle and a huge amount of stress to come into an office, to sit at a desk, to not talk to anybody and to send a bunch of emails. Surely there's a more productive use of our time. Let's hope we can figure it out. My guest today, Chris Kane, the book that we've been talking about is Where Is My Office? Reimagining the Workplace for the 21st Century. And the website is whereismyoffice.com. Chris, thank you. Fascinating discussion. Thank you, Wanda. Good to chat. Lovely to chat, as always. Um, If you'd like to know more about this and other ways to get out of your comfort zone, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And please join us next week for more wisdom in how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 